0: when institutions participate, they participate in size. The pro of this is obviously more innovation and more founders get funded. But the con of this is that there's overinvestment in crypto relative to the maturity of the space. That creates a lot of structural issues. So for instance, we see singular VCs just taking the entire rounds for the early rounds of crypto projects, which is not so good for crypto, especially if your goal is to create a decentralized and neutral network. Welcome back to The Breakdown with me, NLW.
1: It's a daily podcast on macro, Bitcoin, and the big picture power shifts remaking our world. The Breakdown is sponsored by Nexo.io, Circle, and FTX, and produced and distributed by Coindesk. What's going on, guys? It is Friday, November 4th, and today we have a great conversation with Jason Choi. But before we get into that, however, if you are enjoying The Breakdown, please go subscribe to it, give it a rating, give it a review, or if you want to dive deeper into the conversation, come join us on The Breakers Discord. You can find a link in the show notes or go to bit.ly slash breakdownpod. Also a disclosure, as always, in addition to them being a sponsor of the show, I also work with FTX. All right, friendos, well, today I am stoked to welcome to the show Jason Choi. Jason is another longtime content creator and host of BlockCrunch which often digs much deeper technically into projects in a way that I find super valuable and also features a VIP newsletter alongside the podcast. Jason is also formerly a GP at Spartan Group, which is the largest APAC crypto fund, and recently left to start an angel collective called Tangent. In this episode, we talk about NFTs and mainstream adoption, current narratives, and why he's trying to invest in crypto differently. All right, Jason, welcome to The Breakdown. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me, man. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm super excited to have you, you know, uh, we've sort of been been doing similar ish, but different things for a while in terms of kind of a combination of content creation and investing. And, you know, I've always super admired your, your brain as it relates to, to crypto and how you think about things and have been really excited recently as you kind of been sharing more of your thoughts as you've been making some personal transitions. So I thought it was an awesome time to uh, to get you on the show and, and kind of dive into how you're seeing these things. Yeah, definitely. I'm excited to share more as well. So first off, let's start with um, just a little bit of background for those who might not be familiar with with Block Crunch or with your investing and kind of what you're what you're up to these days.
0: Yeah, so uh, for those of you who have been following me for a while, I spent the past four or so years at a fund called Spartan Capital, uh, one of the first Asia focused crypto funds. Uh, We scaled the funds quite significantly in that time, and I decided to uh, step down and focus on working with founders in a more hands on manner. So I started an angel collective with a couple of experienced founders in the space called Tangent, and we've been investing actively in the space and just day in, day out working very closely with founders. And uh, at the same time, I've also been hosting a podcast and a newsletter uh, for the past five years called Block Crunch, where every week we interview a notable founder or investor in the in the crypto space or now the Web three space. Um, that's been a really really fruitful endeavor, and I'm really excited to continue doing it
1: yeah I mean so one of the things for folks who who haven't checked out Block Crunch, I think uh, what makes or one of the things that makes it different Jason is you sort of have to dig in on a deeper technical level to a lot of the a lot of these projects a lot of these trends because as you're making investment decisions you can't kind of just sit completely at a surface narrative level however, at the same time as a professional investor, you also have to operate on that surface narrative level of those kind of th- those twenty thousand foot views and I don't think there are many podcasts out there that are sort of able to to kind of navigate between those two.
0: Yeah, thank you so much. That that's honestly been one of the most challenging aspects of doing the show and now writing the newsletter as well for our VIPs is kind of distilling extremely technical concepts into layman um, and into layman perspective so recently we wrote a memo on zk roll-ups which i think is probably one of the most esoteric topics in crypto but then um, i tried to explain the entire concept from the perspective of like an awkward thanksgiving party so that took me like two days to come up with um so i'm sure more technical minds can probably come up with better analogies but um it, it part of the fun is trying to translate that uh, technical knowledge to a more general audience yeah well, well i know you had um
1: John from from Aztec on recently, uh, he's I, I I just interviewed him as part of this kind of series as well, and I think that they're. I think that everyone who's involved with CK Ropes would say at this point that there's not necessarily really good ways to explain it or really good kind of messaging patterns that people have figured out yet. So that's definitely a, a big challenge. But let's, um, let's do this as a way to kind of kick off the conversation. You just kind of wrote a post uh, or a thread on Twitter called The State of Crypto VC. And in a lot of ways, it was sort of a reflection on, um, you know, it was a bear market reflection on what, what had happened in the last bull run. And and, it, you know, this was not sort of like some fire brandy, here's all the things that VCs did wrong. It was more just sort of an honest assessment of what a different kind of moment in time in terms of capital availability meant. And, I, you know, for me, it, it rang true not just for crypto, but I think in, uh, probably a lot of sectors of tech. But walk through a little bit about kind of where that came from, where those, some of those sort of misaligned incentives or, or excesses you saw, you know, in, in the last bull market were, and then how you guys are thinking about them a little bit differently now.
0: Yeah, so basically, I think last year, uh, or even the year before, we saw a lot of capital inflow into crypto, a lot of this was institutional. And when institutions participate, they participate in size. Um, So the pro of this is obviously more innovation and more founders get funded. But the con of this is that uh, there's overinvestment in crypto relative to the maturity of the space. So that creates a lot of structural issues. So for instance, seed stage companies have to raise at much higher valuations. And especially for projects with tokens, this also means that they come to market at much higher valuation, which curtails the upside for retails, which as we know, is a pretty big part of most crypto communities. So that that's pretty important. Um, The other thing is also we see singular VCs just taking the entire rounds uh, for, you know, the early rounds of crypto projects, which also is not so good for crypto, especially if your goal is to create a decentralized and neutral network. So a lot of these um, phenomena would have been okay in a Web2 setting if you're investing like SaaS or consumer software. But if you're investing in crypto native networks that are supposed to be decentralized and community owned, uh, a lot of these principles simply wouldn't work. So. Um, this is not a dig at any specific VCs. I think VCs play a really crucial role in crypto, right? Especially back in 2018 in, in a bear market when we needed capital. Uh, but now we have way too much capital. So I kind of took a step back and thought to myself, okay, what is a way to invest in this space that doesn't contribute to this problem that actually fits in this context? And what we decided was, okay, we should, first of all, stay small. And second of all, second of all, solve the principal agent problem. Instead of being incentivized to raise as much money as possible, let's just Invest our own money, and let's invest with a bunch of founders who have, you know, walked the walk, who have done it before, who have scaled billion-dollar protocols, and they'll come in with not just their own capital, but also their own insights and dedicate their face time to each founder. And that was the simple concept. Um, So I think the good way to kind of discuss, to to, to kind of describe us, is a very bespoke and hands-on and boutique fund. Um, Some people think we're an incubator and accelerator. Uh, That's not the case. We're uh, really just a kind of new way to to invest together super cool.
1: Uh, I I want to talk a little bit more about tangent in a minute but kind of stay on the the broader the broader theme for a moment. You know, one of the things that was really fascinating, I I was doing venture in um, in Silicon Valley and sort of the 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 teens, uh, let's call it, sort of the the middle teens and um in back then it, it was it was wild how Little awareness of the macro forces that were shaping things like valuations, there was, right? So like when you talked about valuation creep in 2016, 2017, it wasn't a sort of structural problem of a low interest rate environment that had been around for, you know, eight plus years. It was just that Y Combinator had more power now and it was sort of driving valuations up, right? And and it's fascinating now to kind of, to, to look back and see to what extent, the dynamics in, and this is sort of web 2 you know venture capital were shaped by these larger forces that didn't necessarily have to do with the optimal way to create startups. I think the other big obvious one that is that that sort of part of the world is going to have to grapple with is the the incentive to raise further funds on the basis of the theoretical valuation growth in your portfolio versus actually on the basis of exits right and and returns there's sort of the the hugely compelling uh 2% management fees where you know if you're if you've got a 400 or a 500 million dollar fund it just totally changes the kind of dynamics of the incentives. I know this is something that you were kind of starting to see come into crypto as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think um, it became an easier business to raise a lot of money and get a guaranteed two percent management fee than to actually gun for returns in a pretty frothy market. Um, so that kind of warps incentives for a lot of investors. And uh, I think the, the only way to really solve that is to either be disciplined with your fund size and not raise just because you can or just go full prop, right? But um, you know, full prop is another business model entirely. Um, there really is no business model in prop, right? You, you either succeed as an investor or, or you're you know, your own necks on the line which uh, I think it's a risk that I'm willing to take and I, I live for that excitement
1: yeah well so so the other thing that I thought was really interesting about your sort of assessment of where things were was that you made the distinction between uh companies for which the sort of some of these excesses were maybe bad in aggregate but sort of whatever for the company you know like if if a, if a web two company raises a too high evaluation, really the biggest risk is that they're constraining themselves in future rounds right to the extent that that sort of circumstances change whereas the point that you were making was for crypto, it's actually much more existential. You have kind of two factors. One is VCs needing to take more of the sort of network value than is, than is perhaps appropriate given the sort of decentralized goal or, and or the fact that the, the valuation becomes too high for it to sort of incentivize early participants to get excited about because it's already kind of you know, had some sort of metric even before any of that real community effort has gone in.
0: Yeah, I think there's a few factors at play here. So on one hand, I think a lot of VCs play to the egos of founders and basically say that, wow, uh, look look at this team that's you know trading on a thin circulating supply right now at this massive valuation. And your team is clearly much stronger. So you should raise at this higher valuation because you're worth more and you should give us more allocation. And a lot of founders fall for that. And I think in, in Web2, it probably is OK. And like you said, the, the only downside is really you curtail your um you you, you kind of cap how much of an up round you can raise later on and maybe you you scare off some of your potential employees who want to join you because of potential upside because there's lower upside if you raise a much higher valuation relative to to your own development now for crypto it's more existential as you said um you know, you, you really want to make sure that you enrich your early supporters, uh, not just kind of insiders and VCs. And it's very, very hard to do that if as a pre-product startup, you're coming to market with a token at like $10 billion valuation. So that's something that I think a lot of founders don't think about in crypto, especially founders who come over from Web2, because you know, this is a, a, a nuance that, um, that really only makes sense if you spend enough time in crypto.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think it's I think it's a super salient point. I was I was excited to see you kind of dig into it because I I, I do think that it's it's the type of thing that even a well intentioned founder wouldn't necessarily just kind of think about right um, uh, you know because it is such a new space to design for um, so yeah I, I listen I, I'm excited that you that you're coming at it in this different way and you know part of part of that excitement I think also comes to uh, you get to kind of learning and sharing uh, you know out loud and live as you go and so the next question that I have for you is kind of where have you found yourself gravitating in terms of themes uh, sectors you know uh, whatever during this bear market are there particular kind of um, ideas or spaces that you're particularly attracted to?
0: Yeah, so for a while, we spent quite a lot of time looking into NFT finance. We invested in a DAO, actually called Goblin Saks, and their primary aim is to provide liquidity to NFT finance. So it's an extremely experimental idea, but it's so interesting uh, because we, we basically see um, a lot of zero to one innovations happening in NFT finance, which reminds me a lot of what happened back in 2019 uh, or 2020 for DeFi. So these were things like uh, NFTFi, uh, PseudoSwap. So we spent some time, um, you know, studying up on what went wrong with bentdao for instance. And we wrote up a memo for this on, on BlockCrunch for our VIPs. who want to kind of dive deeper into that. Um, on the infrastructure side, we we're spending a lot of time on understanding really the app chain thesis, um, you know, looking at things like data availability, projects like Celestia, uh, we invested in a project called Say, which is building a sector specific chain on Cosmos for DeFi, which is trying to fulfill the vision that Serum painted out but failed to achieve. Um, and also, kind of things that are uh, maybe f- for slightly further out on the horizon. So, things like ZK EVM, ZK Rollups, trying to get smarter on that. On the side, I've also been experimenting with a lot of different Web3 social projects. So I recently just signed up for an account on Forecaster, which is a sufficiently decentralized version of Twitter. You know, I'm not an investor there, but I just thought it's it's really cool to see projects like this. And I've pretty much tried out all of them. Um, Just trying to get smart on that too.
2: Want to keep more profits when trading? Get the best possible prices and trade with 50% lower fees on Nexo Pro. The new Spot and Futures trading platform uses aggregated liquidity of over 3,000 order books collected from multiple sources. Utilizing the complete Nexo suite allows you to earn interest and borrow funds as you wait for the next trade setup. Visit pro.nexo.io. That's pro.nexo.io and sign up today. Just go to circle.com backslash transparency to see why USDC is a trusted stablecoin. The breakdown is sponsored by FTX US. FTX US is the safe, regulated way to buy and sell Bitcoin and other digital assets with up to 85% lower fees than competitors. There are no fixed minimum fees, no ACH transaction fees, and no withdrawal fees. One of the largest exchanges in the US. FTX US is also the only leading exchange that supports both Ethereum and Solana NFTs. When you trade NFTs on FTX, you pay no gas fees. Download the FTX app today and use referral code BREAKDOWN to support the show. Let's
1: um let's take the NFT piece because you you started there and obviously you were kind of talking a little bit more about NFT finance. But you know, as of recording, a lot of the chatter recently has been um, sort of a rejuvenation or reexploration on the back of Reddit's digital collectibles product uh, actually kind of engaging a new set of users. Uh, wh- what do you think about about what's been going on with the with the Reddit, you know, NFT but not NFTs uh, recently?
0: Yeah. So I, I literally woke up yesterday and I saw on this headline about how many, however many million people signed up for this uh, new NFT on Polygon and Reddit. And I thought it, it's quite hilarious because for the most part, I think a lot of mainstream audiences were quite against nfts and a lot of this was perpetuated by this narrative around uh, environmental destruction because of nfts um and it seemingly it seems like reddit all reddit did was rebrand the nfts as digital collectibles and suddenly something clicked in the minds of all the mainstream retailers, and they started to kind of uh, just pile in um and i think this is uh, i think someone tweeted this but i forgot who it was but I think this is probably a good analogy for what will happen with uh, a lot of mainstream apps that have crypto railings in the coming years. Basically, something will suddenly pop up in the mainstream world that uh, crypto Twitter or the crypto natives are completely unaware of, but then it will suddenly bring in millions of people into crypto. I do have a soft spot for you know, crypto native apps and applications that are built for like DeFi, DGens, but I do think the path to mass adoption probably looks a little bit something like what we saw happen with Reddit.
1: Well, and it's super interesting, too, because I think that when you kind of get a little bit of space from 2021, DeFi summer certainly forked the audience in crypto in some way, where the set of folks I feel like who got deep in DeFi really stopped caring, per se, about a lot of the... I don't know, the, the previous internecine battles, right? Like, you know, it's not that they didn't care about the what Bitcoin was doing in general, but it was like that was, all of a sudden, it was so far out of the purview of like 2017, 2018 discussions, right? There was this whole new world of things that were really exciting to explore, but it was also kind of a return to roots of crypto as this financial application. Whereas I think like 2020 and 2021 in particular saw this huge influx of people who got into NFTs and maybe they sort of broke over from that into regular crypto, but like NFT Twitter was distinctly different than Bitcoin and crypto Twitter in a lot of ways. There, and certainly there were, you know, uh, a, a number of folks who kind of trans, transposed or went between the two, but by and large, it was like its own self- contained thing. And now you kind of have this this whole additional phenomenon of NFTs begetting an, an additional entirely other self-contained thing, you know, which, which has even kind of less, uh, you know, con- Connection to the the technology underlying it, I, I think that there's something pretty interesting about that.
0: One of my favorite sayings, probably pretty macabre, but um, the saying basically goes, "Society progresses one funeral at a time." Now, I I don't think it's that extreme in crypto, but I do think that we do see waves of just outdated ideology replaced by um, you know the, the next wave of things that that are uh, that appeal to more people and making the last wave kind of less relevant. And one of my worries is that. Uh, the Ethereum community, um, I, I think some, some some people were pointing out that uh, there, there's a lot of kind of intolerance in in Ethereum uh, relative to some other communities. And they're worried that, you know, we, we could go down the road of kind of Bitcoin maximalism. I'm a massive kind of uh, I, I Ethereum proponent. Um, I, I personally don't see that happening, but I could see that happening down the road. So I, ho- I hope that's not the case. But um, going back to your point, it does seem like, um, you know, every time there is a market expansionary narrative or wave of users coming in, it kind of makes the last wave look small or, or almost irrelevant. And that, that's part of the, the exciting thing about crypto is you've got to always be keeping up to date. And that's part of why I keep doing this podcast is because every week I get to talk to, you know, the newest developers in the space to make sure that I'm not getting left behind. I'm not just some like DeFi guy that, that got lucky, you know, a few years ago. I'm always keeping on top of everything that's happening.
1: Do you think that um, some of the same things we're seeing with Reddit NFTs right now in terms of rebranding, obfuscating what's underneath, do you think that we'll see similar things play out in other areas like, uh, like gaming?
0: Yeah, I think most definitely. I don't think crypto can go fully mainstream beyond crypto natives with the current set of user heuristics it has. Like, it just makes no sense for everyone to, you know, write down their seed phrases and sign up for MetaMask and sign for every transaction and worry about gas and all that to learn about the infrastructure before you can actually use the applications. So, I think a lot of account abstraction would have to um, would have to become mainstream. So, one of the things that I was talking to a friend just yesterday was um, smart contract wallets and this idea around account ex- abstraction. And the fact that we could have so much more, um, you know, new UX if we just have a little bit better wallet experience. So I think a lot of that will have to start from maybe uh, the the wallet side. And then, um, you know, I think the emergence of games is almost like a forcing function for um, for better UX as well, because, you know, a lot of people, they just want to play fun games. Right. So we recently did like an interview with Gabby from YGG, and we talked about, you know, what's going to bring people over to Web3 Games? And one thing we discuss is that you know it's not about whether the game is Web three or not. It's it's really about whether the game is fun or not. That's that's the that's the one thing that would bring people to games. And uh, if if you have to you know make users gonna uh, you know, think about gas prices and pay for every single transaction and worry about MetaMask and all that, you know, chances are you are alienating most of the players in the world. So going back to your question, yeah, I do think that a lot of abstraction will have to take place for crypto to to go mainstream, and that's already happening on multiple fronts. Super, super
1: interesting A conversation this week that I've I found really fascinating on exactly these lines, uh, which is around these new Apple terms uh, as relate to, uh, you know, and their implications for Web3 and Web3 developers. And what I found really interesting about it is that, you know, you could throw darts at sort of the, the crypto Twitter response board and hit completely different takes with I would characterize kind of one set of takes as. Uh, This is Apple officially kind of blocking out crypto infrastructure, uh, you know, because it just does not work with its sort of proprietary uh, payment system, basically. And then another set of people who are basically saying Apple has now officially opened the door for people who are basically willing to pay the Apple tax to do their sort of their NFT crypto things, you know, in the gaming context specifically, but mediated through Apple. And they're they're sort of the folks who are on that side aren't saying, oh, it's great that Apple's still going to get their 30 percent. But they're seeing it as actually still bullish for people to have a choice to decide whether that's going to be an access point that they want versus there being there versus there not being clarity around whether they can that you know the games that they're building can touch nfts or or digital kind of asset technology at all
0: yeah, so I haven't read through the entire um, developer update for Apple yet, but I, I'm aware that there were two main updates, right? So there's one where you are not allowed to use cryptocurrencies to um, gate content. And the other one is you are allowed to sell NFTs in uh, in apps. So obviously, the latter, I think, is a good thing. Um, you know, mobile is one of the big things that I don't think crypto has fully cracked yet. Now, the first thing is... Um, I think it's it's definitely a handicap. Uh, I I do think over time, you know, if crypto does become big big enough of a threat, and these decentralized systems becomes big, big enough of a threat, we will have to break away from centralized distribution channels, you know, like Apple, um, you know, like any any type of devices. So uh, to a certain extent, uh, the I, I think a lot of people were were kind of clowning the announcement of the Solana phone and thinking it just makes no sense. But I thought it was actually, you know, probably a necessary first step, like whether the Solana phone itself will be the thing that takes off. I don't know. But I think, you know, crypto does probably require its own hardware and its own distribution channel way down the line. Um, But yeah, all in all, I think it was a pretty neutral development. You know, there there was, you know, one good clause followed directly, one bad clause immediately followed by one good clause. was all I saw it sounds
1: pretty standard for right now i mean i feel like you could also kind of map a, a lot of the regulatory discourse over the course of this bear market has been very similar where it's sort of like you know we veer away from kind of worst case scenarios but then there's sort of challenges along the way um what's your take on kind of the regulatory discussion right now and and how much are you kind of thinking about that as relates to you know your business and and what what your entrepreneurs are building
0: so I think there's a few regulatory uh, authorities, especially in the U.S., that are cracking down on crypto. Um, so for for the most part, what I see from the SEC is often a slap on the wrist. So uh, if someone issues an unlicensed type of sec- uh, what, what is perceived to be an unlicensed securities offering, they often get slapped with a big fine. Um, I think some founders seem to be comfortable with that risk, and they go ahead with uh, doing you know doing their stuff with their token. But uh, I think one one risk that most founders or probably all founders are not willing to face this the risk phase uh, coming from OFAC, uh, because violation of OFAC sanctions basically means jail time and, and pretty significant um, penalties relative to the SEC. So I do think this is probably one of the um, hardest times to be building, especially in DeFi in the U.S., um, I, like everyone else, uh, waiting for regulatory uh, clarity on, on what's going to happen with DeFi. And what I heard is that a lot of uh, good folks in DC are you know, fighting for this. Uh, so hopefully we'll see something come out of that. But at the same time, you know, we, we also see large players, which a lot of people perceive to be beneficial to the space, kind of almost turning on the space a little bit and lobbying for more restrictive regulations. So hopefully, um, you know, that could lead to a discourse that that, that leads to backpedaling on some of those things. Um, but it, it is definitely a really tricky time to be a founder from a legal perspective in the US. Um, and it's quite interesting for, for people who want to kind of understand the perspective of builders outside of the US, you can check out our recent interview with Ribbon um, as well, because they're, they're based uh, in Asia. And I think a lot of their approach to a regulations is is quite different to how a U.S. based founder might be thinking about it.
1: Super interesting, yeah. There's another kind of point that you recently made on Twitter that that I thought was interesting because it's something I think about a lot as well. You argued that you felt like we were finally hitting the apathy stage of uh, of the bear market. Do you think that's actually the case, or is it sort of just you know a quiet moment in between, uh, still a lot of excitement?
0: Um, I guess in terms of volumes, right, we're, we're down pretty uh, quite, yeah. quite a bit from all times high in terms of prices. We obviously, you know, been stagnating for like two months now. In terms of deal flow perspective in the primary market, we haven't seen as many application layer deal flow. There's a lot more infrastructure stuff coming. Um, so things like data composability, a lot of people working on zero knowledge stuff. But in terms of, you know, the, 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 the wide eyed kind of Web2 developer coming in and trying to build a game or a consumer app, uh, those have pretty much died down. So I do think we've entered almost apathy. Um, I don't know how long this will last, but uh, this to me is usually a good sign that uh, a lot of the stuff that remains is probably not noise. A lot of these things, will, a lot of the people who are raising capital now or building right now um, or just starting to build right now could end up being you know, the market leaders uh, in a few years. So we're, we're paying extra attention definitely uh, in a time when you know most people are probably turning away and you know going out and touching grass and stuff. Um,
1: it seems likely that crypto has to wait for the macro to turn around for it to have kind of a a full turnaround as well. But when that happens, what are catalysts that you see that are kind of crypto specific catalysts for a resurgence a return of interest a return of people paying attention here, again, outside of just the Fed being forced to pivot and be accommodative again or something like that?
0: Honestly, I think we just need uh, one or two breakthrough use cases, right? So you remember that wave of just wellness or fitness applications that came to market because Stepin was paying people, you know, a thousand dollars to walk around every day. Um, So obviously that wasn't sustainable, but that unlocked new use cases and I think tapped into new types of users uh, around the world. Um, And we kind of saw this with another project recently, which uh, I I probably shouldn't disclose because we're still doing work on it. But they unlocked a new use case, which I think most of crypto Twitter is not really aware of in the part of the world that I think most of crypto Twitter isn't paying attention to. But the volumes generated there are more than the entire NFT market. Um, so we're paying close attention to things like that, uh, to potential breakthrough use cases. Um, but all in all, I do think that um, macro definitely plays a bigger factor here. A lot of the reason why we had that massive uh, run from 2020 onwards was because of excessive liquidity across all risk assets. And I think the converse is true as well. For that to come back, we definitely need, um, you know, less restrictive monetary environment. Uh, so we we're playing, paying very close attention to that as well. Um, this is not financial advice, but my personal take is that um, if we do get some sort of a shift in global policy, crypto probably front runs it um, as we have in the past, um, given that it's, you know, a global 24-7 market. So, yeah, we're, we're definitely, um, you know, keeping taps on, on both what's happening in the macro world throughout context and what's happening natively in crypto. Awesome, man. Well, listen, I, I'm super excited
1: uh, to, to see kind of all the all the thinking coming from you. Um, for people who want to kind of find you where where's the best place to get in touch and, you know, pitch you or pick your brain or, you know, try to find
0: what you're what you're putting out. Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter at Mr. Jason Choi. And if you want to follow the podcast, it's at the Block Crunch. Uh, we also have a newsletter for people who want to go deeper. It's called Block Crunch VIP. You can find it on the Twitter as well. Awesome.
1: All right, Jason, thank you so much for sharing uh, your your thoughts and uh, look forward to having you on again soon.
0: Yeah, thank you so much.
1: I think one of the really interesting insights that Jason is bringing to his particular brand of investing is that problems that might have started as excesses of a former monetary policy regime, a loose money, easy money regime, result in problems that look different in Web3 versus Web2. For example, if a venture firm forces too high a valuation on a company and buys too much of their round so that it actually matters in terms of the allocation of their fund size, which is of course giant size because of all that easy money sloshing around, maybe that doesn't matter that much in Web 2. But in Web 3, where the goal of most protocols and projects, at least on paper, at least in terms of what their founders say, is to move towards a state of greater decentralization, being forced to sell off a bigger-than-necessary chunk of the network value in the form of early tokens or equity can be really problematic. I think it's great to see folks who are experienced in venture cutting out on their own to try to do it a different way, so I wish Jason nothing but luck. And like I said, he's producing a ton of great content out there, so I hope you get to find your way to some of it. For now, I want to thank Jason again for being on the show, my sponsors Nexo.io, Circle, and FTX for supporting the show, and you guys for listening. Until tomorrow, be safe and take care of each other. Peace.